most spiritual seekers, especially those who attempt to respond to the message of Jesus, sooner or later question the content and validity of their prayer. I know this to be true for two reasons. My own personal experience and the experience of countless others who have shared their confusion with me over the years. Actually, this is one of the most recurrent questions in pastoral conversation, addressing uncertainty about just what prayer is supposed to be. Perplexity. Sometimes this pops up in odd, unsuspecting moments as people tell their stories over lunch or breakfast or even a chance encounter on a sidewalk. I was on my way to an appointment not long ago, and I ran to ran into an acquaintance walking along Park Avenue. We paused for a moment, exchanging the normal surface greetings and responding to the social habit of my asking, well, how are you? She surprised me with the truth. She was very flustered, she said, and upset by a report. She just came from the oncologist, and he gave her some difficult news. And then she blurted out, you're a minister. What am I supposed to pray for? I've never learned how to pray. I need to learn quick. And caught off guard, I stood there sort of intently looking into her eyes. And when she abruptly said she was running late and had to keep walking, please pray for me, she tossed over her shoulder as she rushed on. It was sort of a hit-and-run pastoral encounter. And some years ago, I officiated at the wedding of a, a young family friend. He had been, he was actually my first godson. And in those years, he was attending Christ Church. In the course of our planning sessions, in an offhand manner, he mentioned to his fiancée that he was grateful to me for teaching him how to pray. Now, this surprised me because we had never had a conversation about prayer, and he had never attended any class or discussion in which the topic might have come up. And asking him about this, he said, well, he had never really understood how to pray. But he learned from me coming on Sundays that I prayed extemporaneously. He had never really understood how to do it or what constituted real prayer, who he was really addressing, and so on. He enjoyed coming to church, he thought it was important, and he felt a God connection, but he was uncertain how to live into that and how to pray. It's interesting, you might think I should have known better, but until that moment, I had not thought about my praying in worship as a kind of instruction per se. In church, we pray. We could say that prayer is part of church culture. It happens in a variety of forms. There are written prayers publicly shared. 
There's time for silent prayer. I wonder what you're doing in those silent prayer times. There are times when the clergy pray, and I suppose any other moment in the course of worship could constitute prayer of one sort or another. Music can be prayer, of course. Adam prayed for us earlier. Still, for all of this praying on any given Sunday, questions and uncertainties abound. I mean, that's right, isn't it? You've had your own questions about this topic, haven't you? And I'm thinking that the culture shared among the band of friends hovering around Jesus in the first century included a lot of prayer. At least they saw Jesus doing a lot of it. Luke reports Jesus was often praying for extended periods of time, sometimes all night. Well, given the potent impact of his life and teaching, it stands to reason the disciples are interested in learning about this standout behavior. He's modeling something very important, it would seem, something crucial to him. What exactly is he doing when he's spending all that time by himself? Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus responds with, A few sentences we've come to call the Lord's Prayer. There's a bit longer, more developed version in Matthew's Gospel. Here we have this stripped-down model with its simple, unadorned statements and petitions. And following this comes important instruction concerning perseverance and the necessity to ask and search and knock on the door of God's estate. Be persistent, he says. But even with the primer on prayer, many are still left scratching their heads. We can certainly say the words Jesus taught. In fact, we will be doing that in the not-too-distant future. Still, you're not alone if you find that these words don't necessarily seem to connect with the business of your life right at this precise moment. But then it might be useful to stop here and ask, what do you suppose would connect with the business of your life at this precise moment? Could you say? You might be able to come up with a laundry list of needs. But underneath all of these things, all of that, do you have a sense of what you're really after? when you walk into a sanctuary like this? The words Jesus gives to his friends are not complicated or long-winded. They're efficient and to the point, accessible and humble, intimate and honest and direct. And they are instructive to us precisely because they're Jesus' words. They reflect his piety, evidently. And while we could usefully spend a month's worth of sermons unpacking the meanings of each petition, for today I want to stay with just one observation, just one very simple idea, one essential quality that sets the context for all of Jesus' prayer. And honestly, friends, I would tell you, if I could accomplish no other thing, in my work with people. It would be to invite them into the discovery of what Jesus sums up in the very first word when he says, Father, 
in the Aramaic Abba, or better for us, Dad or Daddy. It's a salutation of familial intimacy as a beloved child to a parent. This is an intimacy that Jesus invites us to share. Now, someone might say, all well and good, Steve, but I had a terrible relationship with my father, and I can't get around that. Besides, it's only a male image. Surely you're not telling me God is some proto-masculine type. Aren't we way beyond that now? And, of course, substituting mother is no better in this sense, for there are those who can report a deadly relationship with mom. Our language is limited in this way. On the other hand, I would tell you, and I hope you hear me say, that something very, very important is at stake here. What has to be accessed is the healthiest sort of relationship of a child to parent, one of the deepest intimacies and empathies. Whether or not we've ever experienced such a thing, we can imagine it, I believe. We can kind of sense it and feel it in our cellular membranes. We have an instinct for it. Jesus instructs that we can approach God directly, simply, confidently, and affectionately. And all of that is held in that one word. We are to speak knowing that whatever it is we say will be received and we will be held. We'll be held. So whatever else we might say about prayer, relationship is the heart of the matter. Our deepest longing concerns the reunion we experience in this mystical, intimate relationship. For some, this level of intimacy, I'm thinking, as compelling as it might be, might be terrifying, a bit too close for comfort. After all, a relationship like that really does matter, doesn't it? I mean, a deeply intimate relationship really does matter. The parties really do take one another very seriously. Honest-to-gosh, loving relationship is the most serious sort of relationship there is. It's also joyful and fantastic and passionate and life-enhancing. Such a relationship is characterized by a kind of innocent transparency. Nothing remains obscured. We simply cannot hide. We are fully known as we are. Anyone who has attempted a long-term committed relationship knows what I'm talking about here in human terms. Most of us that are married will spend part of our time trying to hide some component of our personality when love dictates that over the course of many years you begin to peel the onion layer after layer after layer until you are completely present to the other. And that's the kind of intimacy that we're talking about here with God. We are fully known as we are. I mean, even as you contemplate such a thing, you can sense what a daunting thing that is that I'm talking about. 
As I was thinking about it this week, I went to one of my very favorite Psalms, 139. Listen to this. Listen to this. With the ears that we now have tuned to the matter of prayer. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light around me become night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light to you. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That's breathtakingly intimate, isn't it? I mean, if you take it to heart, it's breathtakingly intimate. Fully known to God. Completely held, loved, cherished. Sometimes people report how distant God seems, how hollow their prayer feels. But a question hovers in the background then, a question related to whether or not they actually want the sort of relationship they say they're after. I've had that conversation with myself, I can't tell you how many times, where I've been saying some words and it dawns on me I don't mean them. We regularly see this kind of thing play out in the human plane. For instance, many can talk a good game, again, about the sort of partner they're after, and yet reluctant to embody the very same values within themselves they say they want in the other. How many times have I heard that story? We can be clear about wanting certain things, certain specific tangible outcomes, but do we want the actual relationship? Perhaps we're more inclined to think of God as the cosmic vending dispenser. Say the right words and out pops the desired product. For the most part, God keeps his distance, except on those occasions we're really up against the wall. We'll attempt a long-distance relationship then. We'll sort of, you hang out there, God, until I am good and ready and when I need you. You can sort of manage on your own, can't you? Nothing too demanding on the short run, but available for crucial moments. Teach me to say the magical formula might summarize our more honest position in that matter. And of course, this, friends, is just the sort of God that atheists mock. And well, they should. 
But of course they miss the important point, which is the relationship. They miss the essential thing. Sometimes we think we know what we want from God, which is regularly different from what we might need. That's true, isn't it? A good parent gives good gifts. That's the simple logic Jesus states here. Simple but elusive for all of us who have been steeped in a culture that teaches all about having and getting and owning and controlling. That's what our culture teaches us, isn't it? Getting and having and owning and controlling. And Jesus then says, and how much more the Heavenly Father wants to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. But that, that's not what we said we wanted. <laughs> Jesus responds, well, that's what God wants most of all to give. God's own self. That's what he wanted to give, God's own self. The author of creation, the one who knit us together in our mother's wombs, the psalmist says, that one is pleased to be as close to us as our very next breath. That one has created us for relationship. God set it up that way and invites us to share in it. Some weeks ago, in a different context, I shared this passage from Paul. The Spirit, that's the Spirit God is pleased to give us. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought. But that very Spirit intercedes with sighs or groans too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for us according to the will of God. You hear the logic. We don't know how to pray. God wants to give us the Spirit so that the Spirit can even pray on our behalf when we have no words. It's fantastic. We're completely covered. (laughs) We're completely covered. And you know, that is how it is for me much of the time. Like Paul, I find that often I do not, do not know how to pray and for what I might pray. But groans too deep for words intercede and God is pleased to give me God's own self, which is far, far more than I could possibly have asked or imagined. Since we've been talking about it, join me, please. God, it is true that we often do not know how to pray. We're often confused and perplexed and half the time simply terrified by engaging a relationship with you because we don't know what on earth that will mean for us if we took you really that seriously, as seriously as you take us. 
But here and now we confess our perplexity. We offer it up. We know we're cowards sometimes. We offer that up. On the other hand, here we are, present and accounted for. And in this space, we hear that you take us as we are. What a fantastic gift that is. But you hold us, each one of us, tenderly, carefully, lovingly. And that you intend to give us yourself. Would that we could receive this astonishing gift and take it all the way down inside to all the deep places that are broken and vulnerable. Thank you, God. And day by day, we do join other disciples when we say, teach us to pray. Amen.